So Money episode 638, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Claritza Jimenez. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It is a Friday, October 13th. Friday the 13th. Ooh, I didn't even realize that until I just said it out loud. <sighs> My son's favorite holiday is Halloween. Uh, so we are all about the spookiness in our house. He likes to pretend he's a ghost. He thinks about his costume all year long. He loves the whole trick-or-treating. And it's kind of fun. You know, Halloween was also one of my favorite holidays growing up. And so it's it's cute to experience it again through the eyes of a three and a half year old. And of course, my daughter, she don't know what Halloween is, but she will be wearing something very adorable that only my I will be picking out that so take it parents, I take advantage of Halloween when you have babies because you can dress them up as you wish. It doesn't happen anymore after they turn like three, four. Uh, but we have a few ways to go till October 31st. It's the 13th today. And I wonder if we have any spooky financial questions today. I'm not sure. But I want to first bring on our guest, who is our co-host for today. She's an avid listener of So Money, Claritza Jimenez. Welcome to So Money, Claritza. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Where are you calling in from? I live in Washington, D.C., so um, I'm in the district, um, D.C. proper. I, I need to point that out. I know a lot of people say I'm in D.C., but they're really out in the suburbs. Um, but I live within D.C. Um, in Glover Park right next to Georgetown, so... Nice. What is it like living in D.C. in this current political climate? <laughs> Not to get too political, but I, I'm just curious. Like, yeah. you've been there for a while. Have you noticed a, a change in, in attitude and mm -hmm. what's going on? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the most obvious change is the number of protests have gone up. That's empirical data. That's not subjective. Um, we have. That's not fake news. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, 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 the data shows it. At this point, I think we're averaging um, about maybe three protests every weekend, I would say. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and anywhere from maybe like a few hundred people to a couple of thousand. It really varies all types of protests about all different kinds of issues. So I think that that's an obvious change that we could all agree with. Um, and I also think in addition to that, there's definitely um, much more of a sense of, um, I mean, this is already a political city, but it just feels more political than ever. The conversations, I think, are just much more political than ever. You overhear them on the metro, you know, waiting online at Starbucks. So I do think that you see a change. Um, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, what's interesting about you is that you have been able to pay off your student loans and your credit card debt and increase retirement savings in a relatively short period of time, yet over $35,000 dollars in student loans, 10,000 in credit card debt. You say that the process was not glamorous, nope. <laughs> that you lived in a basement apartment uh, and did not live on a full income. So it was really about a mindset shift. What was that mindset shift for you? And then how did you actually go about applying the steps? Sure. So when I talk about a mindset shift, what I really mean, I mean, 
that takes time to cultivate. And I think that that's why so many of us give up because it takes time to be able to start seeing money differently. So for me, I went from seeing money um, due to my upbringing. My mom did a great job in a lot of areas, but when it came to financial stuff, you know, I didn't get the best um, financial education at home. Um, so for me, the mindset shift started in my 20s, right after college, where I needed to stop seeing money as Money pays off my bills. It pays, um, it buys me stuff. I buy shoes with money. I go to a concert and really start seeing money as a tool, as a resource to increase the quality of my life and to give me access to more opportunity and better opportunity. And once I did that, then the way that I started spending my money and, um, investing and saving it, it really shifted. So, I mean, I think for a lot of us, we spend, you know, when we graduate from college and we get that first job, I think we go through a lot of years where money is just, I'm paying off my student loans. Like I'm paying the minimum every month. Um, hopefully I have some money left over to go out to dinner and you see it in a very transactional way. And when I started to see money as like, this is going to give me access to more opportunity. Meaning if I need to go to a professional development conference to meet new people and build relationships to get me a better job, I'm going to be able to do that if I have the savings to do that. And I think when I started seeing money play a different role, then I started treating it differently. I get it. So money is less of a tool, more of a way to invest in yourself. Yeah. And, and it, I think money satisfies all of those things, right? Money is a a resource that we can tap into to pay bills, but also to reinvest in ourselves. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do, Clarissa? All right. So I am a journalist. I have, it's crazy. I've been in journalism for a decade now. I can't believe I'm even saying that because it doesn't feel like a A journalist paying off debt. I'm very impressed. (laughs) I know. You know how hard this is. I've done it, but yeah, it's not not every day. It doesn't happen. Yeah, it's, it's hard. So yeah, I mean, I started out as a television news producer and slowly transitioned into digital journalism. Um, and it's pretty much what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid. So it feels really good. Um, I don't think you can put a monetary value on actually doing something that you dreamt about as a kid. So I really, I don't take that for granted. I think it's amazing that I get to wake up every day and you have your bad days at work no matter what. But even on the bad days, I know that I'm doing something that I've always wanted to do. Um, So I'm a TV video journalist and it's pretty much what I've done since college. I dabbled in politics for like a short minute and then ran off and was like, I cannot do the political thing. I did it for maybe six months and then went back into journalism. So. And you are determined because you emailed me on July 31st. I didn't respond. September 9th, you wrote again. I'm hi. I'm resending this email in case it got buried in your inbox. And you know what? It did (laughs) because I went on vacation That was literally the time I went on vacation after July 31st. I think that was my first day of vacation. Two weeks later, catching up, catching up, catching up. You are so smart to email me again. It is the power of perseverance that gets you places. And so here we are many months later, but hey, it's happening. Yes. We made it. It's all that matters. I'm really excited to get your take on some of these questions that we have. And we've got questions all over the place about retirement, about, well, you can relate to some of this, you know, how to get out of debt. Um, someone's got a question about starting a podcast, which I'll I'll take that one. <laughs> Unless you have some thoughts too, Claritza, with your media experience, maybe you've got something to add to that. And then we have a question about uh, car loans. So first, we have a question from an anonymous 
person, a listener from the Bay Area. It's a voicemail. Here we go. Let's listen. Hi, Farnoosh. I've written in before, but prefer to stay anonymous on this question. I'm in my early 30s, trying hard to save money. Between contributing to my retirement accounts, future house down payment, travel funds, and emergency savings, that doesn't leave much left over to buy fancy clothes, shoes, or cars. My question is, how do you fight the urge to keep up with the Joneses, and in particular with extended family? I know the answer is just don't keep up with the Joneses, but it's especially hard with family because those are the people you want to feel proud of you. And unfortunately, um, outwardly flashy things sometimes feel like the one way to show people that you're doing well. Thank you for any guidance. All right. So the question, Claritza, from this person, and thank you so much for dropping a, a voicemail on the show, Anonymous. We hope to help you. The question is, how do you fight the urge to keep up with the Joneses? And in this case, uh, it sounds like it's an extended family, um, she says. So listen, I think that you just have to get really clear and and purposeful and conscious about your money and know what your goals are. Make sure your money is working towards those goals and, and filter out the noise. No one should tell you how to manage your money if it doesn't sit right with you, if it doesn't feel right. No one should dictate or pressure you into spending. Don't be financially bullied because that's really what it is, right? Keeping up with the Joneses, it's like this subtle financial bullying that like you have to do it the way everyone else is doing it or else you're not as good. You're not as cool. You're not as hip. You're not as with it. And we, we, really bully ourselves over this, you know, feeling like if we don't add, do what the others are doing, that we're not adding up, we're not, we're not being accepted. And I think that's a very human trait, but I think as I've said from the first day when I wrote your so money, Clarissa, I said, you got to be selfish with your finances, selfish with your money. That sounds brutal or harsh or mean, but it's not. It's just saying that the buck stops with you. No one cares more about your money than you. I guarantee you're going to go out and buy the same clothes, the same shoes, the same cars as your neighbors and your friends in the Joneses, and they won't care or think that more of you or less of you. But what you will be different is that you will have less money than you started with. <laughs> what do you, do you have any experience with this, Claritza? I mean, I think living in a city like DC... <laughs> <laughs> as a millennial, as a young person, as any age, I mean, I think that there is a level of uh, trying to keep up with with everybody. I mean, the city, like everybody lives outside, right? So you see what everyone's wearing and driving and uh, eating, you know, it's it's hard to not be tempted. Yeah. And I mean, I think two things about this question. I think you, um, you're right on when you said that you need, that they need to clarify their values. Um because I feel like there's a disconnect, you know, there's a disconnect between what money means to them. Like, what do they truly value? And then how can money facilitate those values versus what the family values? And I think that she, he needs to start differentiating between the two. Um, so that's number one. And I think that that's the kind of answer that I know sometimes people don't want to hear because it's not a formula, right? It's not do steps one, two, three, four, and there you go. It takes some self work and doing the homework on yourself and it's a process. So this person really needs to figure out like, how does money facilitate the things in life that they really care about? And I think that if she were to come up with a list of what she really values, I think it's going to look very differently than the um, 
fancy cars and the clothes and the shoes. So that's one thing. And then to answer your second question, um, yeah, living in DC, I definitely do think that there, there is pressure here. Um, as you mentioned, I lived in a basement apartment in my early thirties. I was so ashamed of it, to be honest. Um, because, you know, here I had this amazing resume. I had this fancy job title. I had the academic credentials on the outside. It looked like I should be living in an amazing apartment. Like I should not be living in a basement apartment, but. For me, what I had to do was go make that connection, like what matters to me? And it was financial freedom. It was having options. And I wasn't going to be able to do that living in an apartment where I couldn't afford the rent and, you know, spending money on things that I really couldn't afford. So I've been there. I did it. I lived in a basement apartment for several years while while paying off my loans and my credit card. Um, And doing so in D.C., it was hard. So But what made it for me work on those days where I did feel bad, I was embarrassed because, again, it's like I went to amazing schools. I have this great education. I have this amazing resume. Like, why is it that I'm here living in a basement apartment? Like, it shouldn't be this way. But I had to go back to what was real for me. And that was in order for me to have more options financially, I need to get rid of the student loan debt. I need to get rid of the credit card debt. And it means living in a basement apartment. So I made the sacrifice, it paid off, but you need to make that connection with yourself about what matters to me. Um, And that made it easier. And I would also add that's incredible advice and I'm so happy for you. I do think it's important that whoever this person is who's leaving the voicemail and everyone listening, when you are going through any sort of financial struggle, whether it's mindset related or just plain dollars and cents related, build a community, a supportive community around that. It doesn't sound like this person has identified that supportive community. Certainly hanging around extended family where you feel judged up, down, left, right, sideways, not a great environment, healthy environment to be in. You can't ditch your family. You can't un, you know, undo your your family ties, but you can choose how you spend your time sometimes. And if this family, these family members are cre- creating stress for you or you're feeling less than in, in their presence, you know, maybe you don't go to so many dinners on Sunday. You don't go to, you know, you, you don't share so much with them, but I will say it's important to share with them that you're happy, that you're fulfilled, that you're having fun. And hopefully through that, they'll see, you know what, she's putting her money where it matters and not where, you know, uh, you know, it's showing up in a handbag. That's great. No, that's excellent advice. And also what caught my attention about this question is that she mentioned retirement account, future house, fancy clothes, but I don't see anything in there about like, what do you enjoy to like doing? You know, what, you know, are you into yoga? Are you into running? Like what activities do you engage in that have nothing to do with the money? Um, so I, right. I think that's also part of the equation. No, you're right. How are you fulfilling your soul? Basically, I mean, it's, like, it's funny. It starts out as a financial question and then you drill down and it's never about. The- yeah, no, I mean, it's never about the money, right? It's never about the money. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. 
With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you. And it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60 day risk free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. Okay, we have a question, another voicemail from FK, just those two initials, also voicemail. Take it away, FK. Hi, Farnoosh. I found your podcast this year and I'm obsessed with it. Came across episode 580 with John Capitanaeus. I was inspired to eliminate my $80,000 in debt. 56000 of that is in student loans. The rest is credit card debt, car loan debt, and a personal loan debt. I make about 60000 a year as a, as a digital marketing manager. I bring in 1600 extra a month from freelancing um, in social media and digital marketing. I was given the opportunity for a new job making $70,000 a year, but I'm nervous that I won't be able to continue um, making my um, freelance job money. And I'm trying to see what I should do next. Should I negotiate um, terms that are similar to my current job so that I can have the flexibility? Um, and then if they don't give it to me, not take the position or should I just stay where I am and continue to make the extra 1600 a month? Um, and which would be about a little bit over 18,000 next year. And I have another client who wants to sign up. So that might even double. What would you do in this situation? I'm also using some of the money to save because I don't have a savings. So I started saving and that's been very helpful. Any advice you could give me would be greatly appreciated. All right. Well, first of all, John Capitanaeus was a guest on the show this year. He is a producer for ABC News, simultaneously got himself out of like a hundred thousand plus in debt. And I will never forget what he told me. He said, if you really want to get out of debt, how quickly you can do it determines how uncomfortable you're willing to get. <laughs> and he was, he got pretty uncomfortable for about two years. Uh, he worked his tail off. I think he said that one, he doesn't recommend this, but there was one day where he worked 24 hours. He didn't and stop working. So I really, I, I listened to this podcast and I could really relate to his, um, as a journalist, as well, right? I mean, people have no, most people have no idea how difficult this industry can be, especially at the beginning when you're starting out. Hearing from a fellow journalist um, that he was committed to paying off all that debt, it's, it's amazing what he did. So. Yes. So what I would say at first to this question, this person asking this question, you know, the real, the real issue it sounds like is that it's it's kind of a nice opportunity, right? You got this job offer, $70,000 a year. The worry is that if he takes this job, that um, there won't be time or permission to continue freelancing on the side, which is really how um, they're able to pay down the debt. And so I wouldn't assume things yet. I mean, I would maybe talk to employees there if you can, or speak hypothetically to the employer and say, hey, like if uh, I have, I want to get out of debt, you can be very transparent about it. Be like, I'm working on a financial plan for myself right now. It's very aggressive. I depend on freelance income to help me with it. Could I 
what are some ways that I can, well, like what would be a no-no around here? And everyone should ask this question. If you have a full-time staff job, you should always ask your employer or at least share with them what you're doing on the side if you feel as though it could be a conflict of interest. Um, some employers have are totally flexible. Others are more restricting. So it's good to just be on the same page and to be transparent because you don't want them to find out and then surprise, you're breaking rules and then it's a whole other uh, issue. So don't assume that you can't continue making the freelance money. Explore that. See if you can. If you cannot, then I would say try to you should always negotiate and ask for more money. So that hopefully that's happening anyway. Um, but um, see if there's a way to carve it out. So if you know that if you take vacation days, you can continue to, to freelance. If you on weekends, I don't know, see what the parameters are around that where there may be some flexibility or just try to make more in this job. But I don't think that this should be the reason you don't take the job. If this is the job that you've always wanted, that you feel will get you to the next level in your career, that it's in a good investment of your time because you're going to learn a lot of skills, meet new people, really get into your career, further into into your career, I think it's it's worth the time. Um, you know, all things constant. What do you think, Clarissa? Yeah, I mean, what caught my attention about this question is that there's a ten thousand dollar difference in the salary, which is pretty good. I mean, that's a pretty good um, raise. But I would encourage um, encourage this person to also look at the benefits. And this is something that I wasn't very good about at the beginning of my career because all I was focused on was the salary. But if you start looking at the 401k match and the health insurance and the vacation time, sometimes that $10,000 difference evaporates really quickly. So I just think it's something to consider that, you know, if the current job where you're making 60,000 is giving you an amazing, you know, benefits package, I don't know. Keep that in mind when you are making the jump, because you might realize that the $10,000 is not as big of a jump as you initially would have thought. Right. And that's before taxes. (laughs) (laughs) This is not really $10,000. And can you save some money within your budget to make up for that difference and then maybe find still another side gig that is compliant with wherever you're going. You might be able to restructure this a little bit to continue to pay off that debt aggressively. You could change where you live, right? And pay different, uh, a lower rent. You could change the way you spend. You could change a lot of things. Earning money is my favorite way to get out of a financial hole, earning more money. Um, But if that is not something that you can do feasibly, or at least the way that you've been doing it, look at ways that you can cut costs. And and that can be a way to bring in more money. I'm going to have you ask this next question, Shannon. Uh, oh, sorry. I'd love for you to read off this next question for us, Clarissa. It's from Shannon, and she's got a question about retirement. Sure. So Shannon says, um, back in 2007, she opened a four, 403B with her former company that is now bankrupt. She gave a small percentage each week in the last few years. She was there. She didn't contribute. And now it's been four years. Today, she owns her own small business and needs to roll over this money into something else. What should she do with it? And in terms of retirement, how does one play catch up? All right. So I don't, do we know how old? She's 33 years old. I have a little more background on her. I was just wondering how old she is. She's going to be 33. She's got about $4,200 in this 403B. 
uh, at 33, you should have about your salary in retirement. I know that's aggressive, but I just read that. And well, I mean, these days we're living longer. The more money, the better. She says she doesn't make much and the cost of living in her city is high. I think as a business owner, you should open up a SEP IRA which is a um, basically an IRA for business owners. You can contribute up to 50000 or a little bit more every year, tax deductible. It's like a super hyper IRA. You could per- perhaps roll that old 403B money into the new SEP IRA that you create, or you could open up you know, just a traditional IRA uh, and roll that into that. Although well, the traditional IRA lets you save only up to $6,500. But you should do something with it. You should roll it into something, I think, where you're keeping an eye on it and maybe you're starting to recontribute some to it. In terms of retirement, how do you play catch up? So we don't know how much she's earning, but at the minimum, at this stage, with only 4,200 in savings, I'd love to see her contributing like 15% of her income to a retirement account. Maybe it's that SEP IRA, uh, Start there, um, but but definitely contribute automatically from your monthly income. And I know with owning a business, it's it's it fluctuates. It's never the same. You're, you don't get paid every two weeks like we do with a desk job. But um, once you start to get into a pattern, or once you kind of can start averaging, then take 15% of that and put it towards a retirement account every single month. And there are calculators online, Shannon, that can help you with this. Um, so if you go on to you know, any search engine and type in like retirement calculator, there are a number of, of reputable ones that will pop up within the first like 10 results. And just go in there and plug in what you've got saved. You can... Um, the value of your home, the equity, you know, is a part of your net worth. It's not something to bank on necessarily, but it's it's good to know what that is and uh, it could add that to the retirement calculators. They will ask for that. Do you feel like you're on track for retirement, um, Clarissa? You know, I am super aggressive about my investing and I don't like to call it retirement savings because I don't feel like in my generation we're ever going to really retire. Like I, I see myself working forever. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be working like the 50, 60 hours a week, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be working up until the end. The end. Um, um, so yeah, I do. I am a, an aggressive um, investor when it comes to my investment accounts. And I think what made the difference for me, which is probably advice that I don't know if it's like commonplace to hear, but it worked really well for me. I ended up getting a no fee financial planner in my early 30s, and it was a total game changer. I did a lot of research, you know, obviously I just didn't like go, you know, pick the first person that came up on Google. I um, spent about maybe six months looking into someone and I found this amazing guy who um, I've been working with him for two to three years now. And he really set me on a path. I was already investing pretty aggressively, but when I partnered with him, he made me see things so differently that I increased my contributions drastically. And, uh, you know, because of that, I feel like I'm in a sweet spot. I can always do better, I feel like. Um, But I don't think I would have become that aggressive without his help. So that's something that I actually would recommend to people like in their, especially early 30s. I feel like that's a good time um, to get a no fee financial planner. It's like a financial therapist. You know, this is my financial. Yeah. How did you know oh, he was right gosh, for you? I think it was 
A combination of things. Um, I think the journalist in me kicked in. So I did a lot of research. I talked to a lot of people. And I remember calling this one guy. I put a list together of like 10 people in the D.C. area that I had researched. And I called up this one guy who had a really good reputation. And I'm going to be very honest now. I ended up finding I came up with my list based on names that would come up in like really high-end magazines in the DC region, like basically where wealthy people were going to get financial advice. I wanted to know where the wealthy people, really wealthy people in the area, yeah, getting their financial advice from, because obviously they're going to get the best advice. So I put my list together based on that. And then again, the journalist in me, I started calling up people and I called up this one guy and he was like, look, I'm about to retire actually, but there's there's another guy that I would love to work with. And he focuses on millennials and younger uh, professionals. And I think he would be the right fit for you. So he was the one that put me in contact with my financial planner. And we talked on the phone. I met him in person and it just worked. I mean, he's someone who is so First of all, so knowledgeable, so patient with me. He answers every kind of question. And I know it sounds cheesy, but I don't think he's only in it for the money. Like you can tell he really enjoys what he does. And I'm obviously like not a high net worth client. I'm, he has people that wake, make way more money than I do. And I feel like he treats me just the same. You know, you can tell that I get the same kind of respect and attention that his, you know, his wealthier clients get. Um, but yeah, I'm a big believer in paying for help, like pay for quality help, can do everything on our own. And, you know, when it came to getting a financial planner, it, it just changed my whole perspective um, in terms of how you look at investing. So it really helped me out. What a great success story. You know, people often ask me on the show, on this episode, how do I find a financial advisor? Where, who can I trust? You just gave us so many great leads. Thank you so much. And glad that that is working out for you. Uh, our next question is from Natasha and she wants advice on starting a podcast. Well, you've come to the right place, Natasha. I don't know if we can get it all in, uh, in this particular episode. She says she's been Googling for almost a week now and finds nothing that goes into detail. Any insight or advice would be greatly appreciated. So with podcasts, like any other, I think, media platform like video or blogs, there's the idea side and then there's the technical side, right? And you got to work on both of these simultaneously before launching, while launching. So you want to get really clear on what is your show about. That's as important, if not more important than getting all the technicalities figured out. You know, I didn't know much about editing or how to get someone to read uh, an intro to my podcast or how to even get it up on iTunes. But be rest assured all of those resources and how to's are out there. And once you're ready to execute, you can just connect those dots and it's very easy. And if you want, I can, you can email me again and I can give you some resources, but I want to spend time answering your question, Shannon, uh, Natasha, by explaining the importance of really getting clear on what your show is about. First question you want to answer is why do I want to do a podcast? Be clear on that. Um, bad answers include because everyone else is doing one, because I think it'll be easy, because I think it'll be a fast way to reach millions of people. Um, you should really want to do a podcast because unlike maybe doing a blog or a video series, podcasting, you feel most comfortable doing. You feel like you are someone that can be conversational, that you have a lot of thoughts to get out and 
you know, voicing them is kind of your, your jam that you want to bring content, rich, smart content to the audit, to the world. Podcast listeners are really smart. Um, they're not passive. They're very active engagers. And so you have to be really, I suppose, uh, thorough on, on how you want to deliver this and um, really thoughtful about how you want to execute it. And I would survey all the other podcasts within that genre or category of podcasts that you want to launch in to see what's already out there. What are people saying they want more of, less of? Really survey the landscape. Talk to other podcasters. I'm a member of a wonderful podcast support group on Facebook called She Podcasts, which I don't think you can become a member of until you actually have a podcast. But I feel like these days, everyone's like six degrees of separation from a podcaster. So if you can find three, four, five other podcasters that are within your town or you can easily Skype with, that like you have relationships with that you share in common, call them. That's what I did. I just spoke to a lot of podcasters in the beginning. I said, what kind of microphone do you use? How do you launch on, on, you know, iTunes? Well, any advice for me? What does it cost? Um, how do you get guests? Like, I, again, I don't want to spend the whole show telling you all my all my facts, but I'm happy to follow up with you in a follow-up email. But I would reach out to other people that may be more accessible to you, friends of friends of friends, of cousins of neighbors, who can give you their do's and don'ts. I think that's a great place to start. Jessica's last question here for us. She's got $11,000 in car loans and the debt is a, just under 4% interest. She has about $100,000 between her savings and her investments. Should she continue investing or pay off her loan first? Hmm. (laughs) Well, I might sound crazy here, but I almost feel like don't worry about paying off the car loan. Um, Well, it's not that high of an interest rate. The car loan's what, a five-year term? If she just stays the course, she'll probably pay it off. Calculate the interest. What would the interest payment be over those five years? Or I'm guessing like three, five, seven years. It's not going to be more than that at this rate. Calculate what, how much interest you're paying. Compare that to how much interest you could potentially earn investing in the stock market over the next five years, looking at how much you have earned over the last five years. Now, I know that the historical returns are not future predictors, but you know, on average, the market returns anywhere from 6 to 8% over the long run. So that's better than what this interest rate is. And I don't know about you, Clarissa, but I'm a little worried about the future. Um, I'm not going to get all doom, doomsday on everybody here, and I'm not going to get all apocalyptic, but I do think that the, at least the stock market is looking a little too hot, a lot too hot to me right now. It's at the highest levels. We've never seen them at these levels before. I feel like there has to be some correcting at the minimum. Some people are throwing out the R word. And so in that environment, cash is king. You know, so I mean, I'm keeping a little bit more cash on hand right now because I'm a little risk averse and I want to be prepared for who knows what more than I would want to be prepared for who knows what five years ago. My, I'm a little more concerned now. My, 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 if I, if I, you know, if I had sort of a, a colored meter of Farnoosh's own like worry meter, wow. it's kind of at, like oh, orange goodness. right now. Those Yellow, those- orange. I'm an optimist, wow. but I'm also a realist. Yeah, that, I mean, 
I'm not paying off my car loan. That's, I'll tell you, you know, that so much. funny because when I looked at that question, my gut, my instinct um, was to pay it off as long as she keeps um, at least like ten thousand dollars in cash savings. I feel like for me, ten thousand is a good minimum to have. She doesn't really tell us. She has a hundred thousand between savings and investments, but we don't know the split between savings and investing between those two. Um, I feel that if you don't go below the 10,000 cash savings, like that's for me a threshold, I would pay it off just because of the psychological boost that I get from knowing I don't owe anybody money. Um, that for me, it's it's a motivator, but that's very subjective. Um, I also see where you're coming from in terms of cash is king and we don't know where the economy is headed. So, Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's it's a short-term loan. Car loans are short-term, right? And so we're not talking, this is probably not thousands of dollars in interest. We're talking, yeah, I mean, I mean, can do the math. It's probably just $500 in, in interest. Um, you know, oh, so that's, that's the benefit of paying off the car loan early. You're going to put $500 in your pocket. I think you're going to make more money investing in the stock market over the long run. And the earlier you do it, Compounding is so powerful. Uh, so that would be my advice. I mean, yes, there's a psychological benefit to not owing money to people, but there's also a psychological benefit to knowing you have a lot of cash when things might not go your way. So that's what you have to really decide, Jessica, is what makes you feel more comfortable and also you know, how compelled are you by the math? Because the math to me says continue investing. All right. That's where we're going to end. And thank you so much, Claritza, for coming on, for giving us your own personal story and the lessons learned. I'm so happy to hear that things are going so well for you on the financial front. Um, yeah. And, and again, listeners, you guys ask the best questions. Keep them coming. Go to somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh. And that's where you can either leave a voicemail or send in, type in a question. Really looking forward to hearing more from you. And Natasha, seriously, if you've got more podcasting questions, email me and hopefully I can send you some links, some resources, but start with your immediate community. I'm sure there are a number of podcasters or people who know podcasters who'd love podcasters are generally nice people. <laughs> we're not, we're not an intimidating crowd. We're, we're people, people. We, I'm sure they would love to help you out. Claritza, have a great weekend and everyone else hope your weekend is so money. 